Why don't you turn this stone into bread? It's coming across like he cares. So what's, what's the issue? I mean, he did feed thousands by creating bread from a little and, and fish from a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. I mean, he created it all out of nothing. He used his spiritual power to feed thousands. What's the issue? Well, let's think about that for a minute. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. The conversation this week is from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. The title is The Law Fulfilled. At a time in American culture when spirituality is on the rise, Joe Durso seeks to give biblical meaning to the idea of spirituality in episode 22, The Law Fulfilled. Only a believer directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit can fulfill the law to God's satisfaction. As always, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message, The Law Fulfilled. Dear Heavenly Father, you are the one that deserves all glory and honor and praise because you are God. Allow us as we come before you in these fleeting moments, to recognize that there is one God and it's, it's not us. It's not me. It's the God who is seated in the heavens, the one who is with a, without beginning of days or end of life, the one who has always existed. Lord, that's enough for us to throw ourselves in, on the ground in your face, on our face, and say to ourselves, I have no right to speak to such a person. You are infinite in every way. You are without beginning. You have always been. I can't even conceive of what that means. And yet it's true because it's in your word. You are good. You are holy. You are just. And your ways are past finding out. I can't find out what it means to always have been. As Moses stood before you at the burning bush and said, uh, what is your name? What shall, what shall I say to the children of Israel? Who sent me unto you? And you said, I am that I am. Lord, these are not just words. This is words that evoke in us or should. Worship. Just worship. I asked your Heavenly Father as we proceed to to expose your word, the scripture, from the epistle to the Romans, I ask, dear Lord, that we would worship you, we would honor you, we would respect you, and it would lead to obedience. To call Jesus Christ Lord. I ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. The law... Fulfilled in the Spirit is the title of this episode. Taken from Romans chapter 8, 1 through 4. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. 
For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is God's word, and it should be honored as such. The first point that I want to look at from Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, and verse 1, in Christ there is no condemnation. I mean, it just doesn't get simpler than that. That's what it says. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What's that mean? Well, the one who, according to John chapter 3, verses 18 through 21, John speaking, he said this, quote, the one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He's already judged. Why? Because he doesn't believe. Belief is everything in the scriptures. When it comes to salvation, it's everything. Why? Of course, Christ is everything. But belief in Christ regarding salvation is so important. Verse 19, this is the judgment. Here it comes. This is the judgment. We hate judging. Don't judge. Don't judge. Well, that's what God does. God judges. And he has the right to judge. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Now, for people around the world for the last 2,000 years, there are people who never received that light. All people have light. And if you go back to the beginning of this series, the book of Romans, you know, there's light from conscience. There's light from reason. There's light from the law, and then there's the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This, where John is speaking in chapter 3 of the, 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 the gospel, of, according to John, he's speaking about the light that has come into the world, which is the, the Jesus Christ, and the gospel which is proclaimed about him. And people love the darkness rather than the light. This is what he's talking about. They're judged already that the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, so that his deeds will not be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds will be revealed as having been performed in God. What's he saying? It's not complicated. It's really very simple. Every person who's born in the race of Adam is a person who hides from the truth, hates the truth, does not want to be exposed by the truth because of human pride. We have taken on the characteristics of the one that we believed in in Adam. We're a race. We're all tied together much closer than we all want to admit. We're all human beings we all look alike. We all have two eyes, two ears, a mouth, a nose. All, all the features are the same. Characteristics are the same. We're all different, like snowflakes, but we're all the same. Whether one admitted or not, it's just one rice. It all goes back eventually to the person Adam. Adam rejected and Eve rejected God in the garden. They believed the devil. The devil is this 
enemy of that hates God so much we can't even we can't comprehend his hate and we're hateful people as a race but he hates God so much and we have taken on his characteristics of pride how could a created being compare themselves to a god who has never had a beginning he's always been He's infinite in all his ways. Now, no one wants to accept this fact. Why? Because we want to be God. But the reality of it is we're not God. We live, we die, generations come, generations go. We don't hold the sun in, in, the, in, the, in space. We don't hold the universe in its place. We're just men. That's all we are. But we don't want to think of ourselves that way. And then when it comes to verse 21 in chapter 3, John makes a statement that's it's astounding in a way. But the one who practices the truth. Now, he doesn't say the one who practices good. He doesn't say the one who practices morality. He doesn't say the one who practices the law. He says the one who practices the truth. He's focusing on the truth. The truth about the law of God that's given on Mount Sinai that reflects what God's moral standards are He's talking about the truth of the gospel that declares the law as one that reveals our hearts. It comes out all in the book of Romans, right into it now in chapter 8, the, the, the reason for the law. And as a schoolmaster, he once said in, back in chapter 7, it, it, it brought us to the place where we could see that we hate God and we do not want to obey or submit ourselves to him, even though he's God, and we're just created beings. So the one who practices the truth, the one who hears this truth of the gospel, that we cannot save ourselves, and we need a savior, and God provided that by becoming a man, by sending his son, the second person of the divine trinity, into the world, the one who believes this practices the truth and comes to the light. It's not in us to do that. It's an act of God's grace that allows men to do this. So that, he goes on, his deeds will not be exposed. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light so that his deeds will not be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds will be revealed as having been performed in God. What's that mean? And this is the key to this whole lesson. You wrap your mind around this, you get the whole thing. Having been performed, his deeds will be revealed as having been performed in God. Who does the deeds? God. God only accepts that which comes from him. Why? Why would God accept something that comes from a created being when the created being is created by God? God gives him life. He gives him thought. He gives him reason. He gives him gifts, all kinds of gifts. He gives him the ability to think and perform, and everything that he has comes from God. There's nothing that exists in the universe that does not come from God. All things were created by him, and without him, nothing was created that was created. 
That exa is exactly what God says in his word. And that is exactly the truth because God can't lie. So, so if we have good deeds and they're not done through God, hear this, they're not acceptable. I'm not saying this. John said this in chapter 3 of his gospel in verse 21. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds will be revealed as having been performed in God. So in verse 1, there's no condemnation. In Christ, there's no condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ Jesus is the one in his deeds was a substitute taking away our sin. And this is going to progress in a way that's going to make a whole lot of sense. Just keep going with me. So in verses 2 and 3 it says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. Now this is should be coming more clear because he's bringing in here the law of the spirit of life. In Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Because you see, the law has no ability. There's no ability in the law. It's just a statement of what God demands. It's God's heart laid out for us to read and understand and think about what is moral and what is not. He's placed it in the conscience, and the conscience, depending on how corrupted it is, speaks to us of these things. But in the end, it's written down in the law, and now we understand, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not commit murder, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, shalt not commit idolatry. These are God's standards. These are God's laws. But the law, even though it's stating these things, can't help you do it. But... In Christ Jesus, you've been set free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, and now this is the problem, the flesh. The flesh is that thing I was just talking about a minute ago when it's regarding self-effort, pride, ego, lack of submission, rejection, re revolution. All of those words that depict sin in its defiance of God. So when he's when I when we can quote Romans seven three just one chapter back and understand what Paul said. So then, if while her husband is alive, she gives herself to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. That's according to the law. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress if she gives herself to another man. And then he goes on and he explains that we're free from the law because in Christ we died. So we're put to death. The flesh is put to death. We're raised in newness of life. And this we can read from Romans 6, 15 to 18. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Far from it. May it never be. God forbid. Why? Do you not know that the one to whom you present yourselves as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the same one whom you obey, 
either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. And after being freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So what's he saying here? And this all has to do with the freedom we enjoy and the slavery we enjoy. What did you say? Yes, the slavery we enjoy. And I, he gets to the, he's just stated it in these verses. Number one, to the person who places the full weight of his trust in Jesus Christ alone, there is liberty. When you place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, rather than some works you have to do, cleaning yourself up in order to come to Jesus, which is an oxymoron, it's an impossibility, it's not rational, because we come to Christ for the cleansing away of our sin. So that the person who places their first full weight of trust, Jesus Christ did everything necessary to take away my sin. For this person, there's liberty. Second, the person who trusts Christ is not trying to test the limits of God's grace, but appreciates the forgiveness he already enjoys. He appreciates it. He's thankful for it. He doesn't throw it back in God's face. And that's what he says in verse 16. Do you not know that the, the one to whom you present yourselves as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of that same one. So if we present ourselves back to sin, we become a slave of sin resulting in death. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. Why? Out of appreciation for what Christ did. And we became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching. What's the form of teaching? Jesus Christ did it all. He died on the cross. He paid the price for sin, and in that, there's no condemnation. Number three, the person who enjoys freedom from sin becomes obedient from the heart. And number four, the person that is free not to sin becomes a slave of righteousness. Why? Because we love Jesus. We love it. Him as Lord. We want Him to be the Lord of our life. Why? He saved me from an eternity of hell. He served, saved me from the punishment I deserve because I'm a proud, egotistical, self-absorbed, self-centered sinner. I know that's true of me. I, not only do I, did I see it when I came to Christ, He continues to show me over the course of the last 47 years. I mean, I'm saved 53 years. Those first six, I went nowhere. I, I did keep from sinning in high school, not really knowing the Bible, not knowing Jesus, not, not building a relationship with him, just kind of lost in the old religion that I, that I was born into, not understanding the difference between false religion and a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, there is therefore no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ condemned sin in the flesh. That's 8.3b. So it's coming off of 8.2 and 3. For the law could not, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. When he did that, 
He not only set us free from the law that we're no longer bound to because we're dead, but he condemned sin in the flesh. What does that mean? Well, sin cannot be condemned anymore. Sin comes from the heart of men. You know, we create it because of sin is part of who we are. It's part of our, our character that was corrupted at the fall. Sin cannot be condemned anymore because when Christ died, he concluded it. It was concluded in his death. On the cross, he's hanging there and he says, tell story, meaning the price has been paid. It's finished in total. It's all done. He took the full weight of our sin and condemned sin in the flesh. And that's that human agency, that flesh, which can be good or bad. Jesus was in the flesh. Jesus never sinned. It, he was never corrupted. He was, he was innocent. He was more than innocent. He was perfect and holy and righteous and hated sin with everything that he is because he's God. And as such, he took, when he took upon himself our sins, he condemned that sin in the flesh, which we do, and then he was risen from the dead in newness of life. And that newness of life came out of the grave and by, the Holy, by raising him up by the Holy Spirit, raising up his life, which is holy and just and righteous, so that we might live in him. This is the whole point. And we're now approaching, we've gone through Romans 8.3 and now into 4. In Christ... The requirement of the law is fulfilled by walking according to the Spirit. In Christ, the requirement of the law is fulfilled by walking according to the Spirit. This is the main point of this passage. This is the main point of my message. And it's the main point uh, of Romans 2, 3 and 4. Quote, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now these two, the contrast here is walking according to the flesh, which is self-willed, sinful, self-absorbed, self-centered, prejudiced, immoral, adulterating our relationship, not just with a spouse, but with God, who... We are meant to be the bride of Christ. Those chosen out of the world are meant to be the bride of Christ. The world was lost as a bride. The, the spouse of the Lord Jesus Christ was lost. Adultery was committed with Satan. And it was lost in that way. So that adultery is a parallel sin to idolatry. When we worship anything other than God, we commit the sin of idolatry. We, when we should only be worshiping the one true God. So a person who loves God, worships God, respects God, trusts God, believes in God, worships, honors God, but the person who is an idolater or an adulterer worships the devil. And he worships the devil because the devil is the one who's arranged all of this 
thought of it, schemed, planned from the beginning. And I'm not, this, this message is not about that, but Jesus gave scripture after scripture after scripture that just absolutely confirms what I'm saying. And all you got to do is read through the Gospels in the New Testament, and you will come across all of those texts that place the devil as a, as a spiritual person, an angelic person who fell with the most light, the most intelligence, the most brilliant one that God made among the angels, and he became the worst one. Having said that, in Luke chapter 4, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan, that was after being baptized by John the Baptist, and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. Let me read it again. The devil is a person, and it dates that in so many ways. He has a name, a number of names, the devil, Satan, Lucifer. Yes, it's, it's actually in the Bible. And uh, the dragon, numerous names that depict this person. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Son of God, but Jesus was also a man. And as a man... He was full of the Holy Spirit. He returned from Jordan and was led around by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. So get the picture. 40 days, Jesus, as a man, he is also the Son of God. As a man, he, in his body, he's not eating. Just think about not eating for 40 days and not being hungry. How does that happen? Well, if you've ever fasted, and everybody fasts willingly or not, you get sick, you fast, you, you lose your appetite, you can't eat. That's what he experienced. Not for that reason, but that's what he experienced. person who goes through the, the loss and the death of a loved one, really loved someone. So in this portion, we understand that Jesus was devoted to God. And out of that devotion, driven into the lead, into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, he's giving this time to understand the full nature of temptation He's entered ministry. Satan just goes after him and just is relentless for 40 days. Now at the end of that 40 days, it says, he became hungry. He became hungry. It's, it's, the end of, is in view. This period of time in which the devil is going to come at him and is going to attack him in the wilderness, he's being allowed to attack him. And I don't know, you know, I'm not going to speak from what the Bible doesn't say about, about all other times. But we know that this happened in the wilderness. And we know that there was, he became hungry after this. And that's really the kind of, it is when you come out of 
let's say, depression from having lost someone and your appetite goes and there's just no hunger, and then you're still sad, you're still miserable, that now you start becoming hungry again. It's at this time when Jesus starts to become hungry again that we see the temptations that Satan attacked him with. And he takes on a whole different air that you see what he did with Eve in the garden, questioning God, you know, bringing to light that, you know, God doesn't care for you. Job, destroying Job's life. No, he's, he's different here. He approaches Jesus as if he cares. And when he confronts Jesus and says to him, look, I mean, why don't you just turn this stone into bread that you can eat? I mean, you, you're going to die here. Now, I'm, I'm embellishing, but I mean, think about it. Why don't you turn this stone into bread? It's coming across like he cares. So what's, what's the issue? I mean, he did feed thousands by creating bread from a little and, and fish from a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. I mean, he created it all out of nothing. He used his spiritual power to feed thousands. What's the issue here? Well, let's think about that for a minute. In Matthew chapter 16, just moments after Peter announced that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, like, where did that come from? After that announcement is made by Peter, and and Jesus said to him, you know, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. I mean, that's a huge announcement coming from Peter. Declared from the Father. How? Well, it had to be enlightenment in his soul through the Holy Spirit. And then in Matthew 16, we read these words. From that time, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, to be killed, and to be raised up on the third day. And yet, Scripture says in verse 22, Peter took him aside, and basically, literally, physically, in the Greek, manhandled him, and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And what does Jesus say? But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Now, once upon a time in the garden, Eve, in her naivety, saw a snake. I don't know what it looked like. Hadn't gone to its belly yet. It didn't look like a snake. And the snake said to Eve, or so she thought, all of these temptations came her way. Jesus sees right through Peter. A man is standing before him. Sees right through this and says, get behind me, Satan. You're in my way. You're blocking what I have to do, is another way of saying that. Satan knew where it was coming from. You're a stumbling block to me. I'm going to fall over you. For you are not setting your mind on God's purposes, but men's. Now, as the verses continue, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, means of death, and follow me. 
You have to be willing to die. Verse 25, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what good will it do a person if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for his soul? You know, at this point, I'm, I'm going to read some quotes for, from a man that I respect greatly who lived 125 years ago, died in 1913. E.M. Bounds, Edward McKendree Bounds, a man who was a preacher, a pastor, a godly man, a man who has written more godly things on prayer and why we pray, and how we should pray, and the essentials of prayer, and the power through prayer, volume after volume, which could only come from a man who spent a great deal of time in prayer. And I'm reading, reading recently a book uh, by him on spiritual warfare, and in the end, it talks just briefly from H.W. Hodge, who spent time with him when he was in his mid-70s. And at 76, he says he woke him up in his passionate prayer for the lost. I mean, he spent days in prayer in his, in his 70s, I'm sure long before that, the way he wrote about it. And Ian Bounce says this, quote, the things that men savor and remember, this is 125 years ago. Th the things that men savor in church planning and church life are against God's plan. The high and holy principles of self-denial, godly living, and surrender to Christ are all against men's view of Christianity. The devil seeks to destroy the church indirectly. Men's views eliminate all the unpopular principles of the cross, self-denial, life, surrender, and sur separation from the world. When this is done, the devil runs the church. Then the church becomes popular, self-satisfying, modern, and progressive. This is 125 years ago. And E.M. Bounds is putting his finger right on this matter of how the devil attacked Jesus and how he's been attacking the church ever since. He wants to stand as he did before Peter, in, in Peter, and throwing before Jesus, you're not going to go to the cross. This is not, no, this is never going to happen to you. Well, this is the divine plan. If I don't do this, you don't get your soul saved. No one gets their soul saved. You ruin the plan, and not only that, you corrupt the church. He goes on and he says, Satan has no scheme that can more thoroughly thwart God's high and holy purposes than transforming his church into a human institution, according to man's views. Not, not God's institution. That's something that God instituted like he instituted marriage. No, man's institution. God's, he goes on and continues, God's right arm is thereby paralyzed. The body of Christ becomes the body of Satan and light is turned into darkness and life into death. 
Strong words from a strong man. Again, I quote, The strength of the church lies in its devotion to God. What did Jesus do when he went out into the wilderness led by the Holy Spirit? He was devoted to God. All else, Bounds continues, is incidental and is not the source of its strength. But in worldly popular language, a local church is called strong when its membership is large and when it has social position and financial resources. A church is thought to be powerful when ability, learning, and eloquence fill the pulpit and when the pews are filled by fashion, intelligence, money, and influence. An assumption of this kind is worldly to the fullest extent. Worldly to the fullest extent. In Romans chapter 8, we're learning a, a huge lesson as to where the power of the church comes from. The power of the church doesn't come from worldly influences. That, those defile the church. But in Romans 8, we're told, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, smart or unlearned. It, it doesn't matter whether you're tall or short. It doesn't matter whether you're athletic uh, or, or not. It, it, none of these other things matter at all. The only thing that matters theologically is whether or not a person believes these things. God sees the heart. We can't. We can observe worldliness in the church. Worldliness. To the person who's in Christ, there's no condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. That's freedom. doesn't matter who it is. And the person who you might think the least likely to get this is the one who has the greatest power to do good. How do we know this? John chapter 3, the Pharisee, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? He must be born again. Chapter 4, a woman, a Samaritan woman, not even a fully Jewish woman. And Jesus meets her at the well. It was an appointed time. He tells her he's the living water. She runs off to a town. Men that aren't going to want anything to do with her, a situation where it's a woman to begin with, and, and a woman who's been married four times, and now she's not even married. Rather than look bad and all the gossip, and what happens? They go running to Jesus and they get saved. Everything is always on its head according to the way man thinks. And when the church, men think in the church like men think, they corrupt the church. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, Saved people can live in the flesh, think in the flesh, philosophize in the flesh, theologically have theological thoughts in the flesh. But what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We have to be willing to die. We have to be willing to be a martyr. We have to be martyrs, so to speak, as we live out our lives, so that things do not control our lives. I have to eat, so you're going to get food. In today's economy, in today's culture, we drive, we, we do things, we have things, but, but listen, love not the world or the things of the world. For if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. The world is the philosophy of the world. The world is the philosophy of more is better, of that the whole idea of self and selfishness. You know the magazine Self? You know the, what gossip is made of? You know how man is, is, you know, American Idol. You know, this isn't just a man who's received the gift to which he should be thankful to God. No, he's got to become an idol. We go to war, and there's something good to be said about heroism, particularly when it's, it's fighting against evil. But, you know, we make statues and we exalt war and we exalt things that, you know, as a result of sin and we, we idolize entertainment and we idolize everything. Look, an idol's an idol. Worldliness is worldliness. Sports, I mean, we don't even want to go there, right? Idols, 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 idolatry, sin, worldliness. Am I saying you should never do these things and these things are sin in and of themselves? No. But there is not even a thin line between worldliness, idolatry, fleshly living thought, and holiness. Holiness is separation from what is sinful in the world. And the church right now, if we would be honest, is not doing a whole lot of good in causing and leading people to be separated from the world. We need to be separated from the world. We need to understand Jesus' temptation. We understand need to understand what worldliness is. We need to stop running around like, like intellectual snobs, like financial snobs, and understand that in the church, the person who's a slave is a wonderful thing when they're a slave to God. We can destroy slavery in our minds as an evil thing because when men brings about slavery, it is an evil thing because everything men does, man does in, in defiance to God and hatred of God is an evil. But slavery to Christ, I mean, I, I, I love the thought and every Christian loves the thought of going to heaven inheriting all that God possesses, giving it as an inheritance to the saints so the saints can give it back to God, understanding he's Lord and we're the slave and all we want to do is be obedient to him because to be in his presence is fullness of joy. I mean fullness of joy. 
That's what we want. We don't want things to, to set to substitute for God. We don't want immorality and lust and idolatry and selfishness and pride and worldliness to be a substitute for God. The one who gave us life in the first place and then proved just how much he loved us that he was willing to buy us back, redeem us. Like you redeem a coupon. You give the coupon and they give you money for it. You know, Christ gave his life so that we could have freedom, so that we could become his slaves and enjoy every second of it because we're going to enjoy the fullness of his character. Heaven's going to be about loving one another, unselfishness. People are not going to ever put themselves first. Everybody else comes first after God, after the Lord Jesus Christ. That's going to be a, a world worth living in, let me tell you. Don't throw it away for what this world offers. And what this world offers is sin and death. And that's all it is. And make no mistake, the devil's at the head of it all. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a symbol, an object, meant to be an object of our affection and our love. He evokes it. And if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Lord, for 2,000 years, you've been drawing men in the, in the best possible way. You've been drawing men to yourself because you were willing to die for Lord, you've called the church to be willing to die for you. Selfishness is not godliness. Self-exalting is not godliness. It's satanic. Lord, I pray for the church this day, for all my hearers, who they may be. I pray, Lord, that the, the church might proclaim the message as it's written in the scriptures. Church leaders would, would not fall for the lie that great learning makes a great leader. Knowing the scripture for what it says and living it, discipling others against worldliness to godliness, not exalting in the things which make us proud, but in the things that make us humble that make us willing to be God's slaves and to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and him only. Lord, make that the heart of the Christian in our day, in this culture here in America. And for that, we will give you all the praise and all the glory that you deserve because you are a good, self-sacrificing God for which we give you the praise and the honor and the glory in Jesus' name.